It's good to see all of you out tonight. We are glad that you are here with us. Our lesson for tonight continues our series on Bible basics. What you should know about God's Word. And so far we have talked about the inspiration of the Scriptures. And right now we're going through evidence and some things that we find uh, about the Bible that, that tells us that it is true. That it is the Word of God. That it is to be believed. And so we're going to look tonight at some more of the evidence. And, and uh, basically what I've done is, is in one of my files I found um, five or six different lessons. Uh, different things that, that speak to the inspiration of the Scriptures. And these things prove its inerrancy and its accuracy. And so last week, well last week was singing night. So the week before that, we, we began this lesson on inerrancy and accuracy. And what we have looked at so far in its inerrancy and accuracy is, first of all, the style of the Scriptures, the way that they're written. They couldn't have been written by man. And so we understand that that is one of the, the things that tells us that the Word of God is true. We also looked at the survival of the Scriptures, just the, the fact that the Bible has lasted for so long and that it hasn't deteriorated as far as uh, our understanding of what it has to say. Uh, we don't have uh, books that have been lost and forgotten. We have 66 books that have been well preserved that we understand that, that that's God. God is behind their survival. And if God wants us to know them, then that, that's why they're preserved for us. Uh, but the survival of the Scriptures tells us that these things are accurate. We also looked at the archaeological accuracy of the Scriptures. Some archaeological findings, things that, that we knew about before man ever found them. Uh, one of the ones that, that stands out to me is, is the, the Hittite people that were told so much about in Scripture and yet for so long there was no evidence that they ever existed. And yet there was evidence found that proved that this people existed. And there were some other findings too that we went through. Um, and, and in that lesson there wasn't a lot of Scripture to go through uh, but just different things that tell us about uh, the inerrancy and accuracy of the, the scriptures. And, and tonight we're going to look at some scientific accuracy of the scriptures, some scientific findings, some things that, that we find in scripture. And this will go through um, heavily, uh, this will rely heavily on scripture. So uh, it'll be a little bit different than what we've already been discussing. Uh, but these things again show us the inerrancy and accuracy of the scriptures. Now, I had to get a little creative on the sermon notes because there's basically only one point. And we're not going to get through all of the things tonight, uh, but I'd like to, to get into some more of them next week, Lord willing. But our lesson objectives are, are the same as they were for, for our previous lesson. First of all, to examine the inerrancy and accuracy of the scriptures. And secondly, to prove whether or not the things we read about can truly be believed. 
if we're going to have faith in the Word of God, if we're going to believe these things, then we need to believe them beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that's what this lesson is all about. Proving beyond a shadow of a doubt in our minds the faith that we believe in. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. You know, we have so many things to, that, that we cannot see maybe necessarily, but they do prove to us by faith that these things are to be believed. So as we look at the scientific accuracy of the Scriptures, we have to understand, first of all, that the purpose of the Bible is not, is not to serve as a textbook on science. We don't have the Bible before us so that we can look at these things necessarily and say, well, this thing proves this and this thing proves that. That's not the way that the Scriptures are given to us. However, it does contain scientific statements that have been proven to be factual. But what we have in the Bible, we have God's Word. We have it for our learning, first of all. Uh, that's one of the things that, that we recognize is that that the Bible is for our learning, especially the Old Testament. It's there for our learning. And though we don't follow the, the commands and, and the things of that nature, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, it's there for our learning. And the New Testament is, is there for the same reason. Uh, but the New Testament gives us our doctrine. That's what we, we practice. That's what we, we preach mostly. We preach Christ and Him crucified. The Bible is given to us to give us God's will for us so that we know what God wants us to do and how God wants us to serve Him. But these things are just small bits and pieces of things that help us to understand the truth of the Bible. The accuracy of the scientific statements is evidence of the Bible's inerrancy. George W. DeHoff said this, The mind which directed the writing of the Bible put into it many truths which were beyond the range of human comprehension and human knowledge at the time they were written. Even those that were writing them probably didn't understand completely their meanings, but these things are inspired of God. And they're given to us for very good reason. And so as we go through these scriptures tonight, I, I, some of these we have looked at in, in our Wednesday night class, uh, but most of these we have not. But, but I hope that we look at them from, from a standpoint of, uh, of, of understanding. That, that this isn't given to us as a textbook necessarily, but it does have some wonderful things that that speak to the inerrancy and accuracy of the Bible. We begin with stated facts of the Bible that over time have been proven. First of all, the rotundity of the earth, the roundness of the earth. We have scriptures that tell us that the earth is round. For a long time, I know at least from, from my history classes, there's a, a time where man was sure that the earth was flat. And that if you sailed as far as you could, you'd fall off the edge of it. 
But the Bible, the Bible tells us that the earth is not flat, but that it is round. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. Isaiah 40 and verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It's not the only place that we read of the rotundity of the earth. Speaking of wisdom herself, in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31, is speaking from the standpoint of wisdom. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. Verse 27. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle of the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above. When he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress His command. When He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him as a master craftsman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in His inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. And again, Proverbs chapter 8 here speaks of the circle of the earth. The circle on the face of the deep. Of the end of time, we are also reminded of the roundness of the earth. It's the only way that this particular account makes sense. In Luke chapter 17, and beginning with verse 31, Luke 17 Verses 31 through 36. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. Now notice the wording of Luke 17. 
There are two men in one bed. And one will be taken and the other will be left. There are two women that will be grinding together. And the one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, the one will be taken and the other left. Now, when we think of the end of the world, we are told that Christ is going to come. We're told that it's going to come in the twinkling of an eye. We're, going to, we're told that it's going to be a sudden thing. It's not going to be something where He's going to come at night for some and come at day for others. So how is it that some will be sleeping and some will be working? Well, when we think of the roundness of the earth, it explains very well how this is going to be. Because we understand that, that while we have daytime here, we know that in other parts of the world, it is not. And when it is not here in other parts of the world, it is day. And Jesus is going to come at a time where for some it will be night. For some it will be day. The coming of, of Christ will be in a moment. For some to be sleeping while others are working suggests the rotundity of the earth. Night in some places while it is day in others. And it's perfectly explained by the earth being round. While we're thinking about the earth, also we're reminded of the suspension of the earth in space. In Job 26, and beginning with verse 7, Job 26 and verse, verses 7 through 10, He stretches out the north over empty spaces. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne, and he spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. And here we give verse 10 an honorable mention in regard to the rotundity of the earth. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters. But we, we pay attention to verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Here we have evidence that, that God has suspended the earth in space. Something that we realize whenever we send um, our rockets into space and, and they can look and see in almost a bird's eye view, they can see the earth. And, and we have pictures of the earth. And, and we have pictures of its roundness. We have pictures of it hanging there in space, hanging by nothing except what God has placed in the atmosphere. God did that. And we have evidence of it in scriptures. God is telling Job about these things and Job doesn't understand. God is telling him of his power 
of His greatness, of His ability. He has the ability to hang the earth in the heavens and space. Something that, that we cannot understand except for our recent studies of space. The number of the stars is evidence of the Bible's inerrancy and accuracy. First of all, we read of God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis 15 and verse 5, Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. One of my most memorable classes, I had a, um, I think it was a Sunday or Wednesday night class or something, but I remember we had an evening class. Maybe it was for VBS or, or what have you. But I remember we had, uh, I believe it was four and five year olds. And so I, I was teaching this class. And one of the things that we ran across, we were, were talking about Abraham. And I remember taking them on a, a small field trip. We went outside. And of course it was very dark. And so I had those kids look up into the sky and try to count the stars. And they tried. They counted as far as they could. And they couldn't count them. And I remember looking up at the sky. And I couldn't count them either. The stars are, are innumerable. And that's what God was using. He was using it as an example. To show something very important to Abraham. Look toward the heaven. Count the stars if you are able to number them. If you are able to number them. And of course he wasn't. So shall your descendants be. It's similar to what we read a couple of chapters earlier in Genesis 13 and verse 16. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. But Abraham's descendants could not be numbered. As man cannot number the stars, nor could he number Abraham's descendants. And even we, whenever we look at, at the entirety of the scriptures, we find that we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Luke chapter 3 and verse 8, and especially Galatians chapter 3 and verses 7 and 9. They tell us that we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. But we also have another mention, not only the descendants of Abraham, but of the descendants of David. In Jeremiah 33 and verse 22, Jeremiah 33 and verse 22, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant. And the Levites who minister to me. God was using this as an example. We, we look into the heavens and we understand that we can't number the stars. This is something that only God could create. That only God could do. And what God is speaking of here is another 
good example, more evidence to the inerrancy and accuracy of the scriptures. Man can't fathom the stars in the sky. And God used that as an example to show Abraham the number of his descendants. They could not be numbered. The moon as a witness. The moon as a witness. Psalm 89 verses 34 through 37. Psalm 89 beginning with verse 34. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. There are, are many who have used the faithfulness of the moon, so to speak, to plan life and, and things of that nature, that they use the faithfulness of the moon in, in different ways. And as sure as the moon hangs in the sky above us, hung by God no less, so shall God's promise to David stand. And it is, in comparison, a faithful witness. Can we understand the surety of the moon? Can we understand how it hangs, how, how it's there? Can we understand what keeps the moon in place? Man may not understand the surety of life, the surety or life of the moon, but God does because He is its creator. And just as God is faithful, so is the moon going to be faithful. Whenever we look up into the night sky, we can trust that the moon is going to be there. And again, many in the world have... have have planned different things on just the faithfulness of the moon. Plan their own life on the, the stars and things of that nature. But God is the one that placed it there. And the surety of the moon is evidence of the, the inerrancy and accuracy of the Bible. Light is vocal. Light is vocal. Notice what is said in Job 38. We're going to look at a couple of different parts of this chapter. But Job 38, and beginning with verse 19, verses 19 through 21. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? That you may take it to its territory. That you may know the paths to its home. Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Verse 19 says, Where is the way to the dwelling of light? 
a few verses previous to what is said in verse 19, in verse 7, it says this, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Again, do we know the answers to the questions asked of Job? Again, this is God speaking of of His greatness and, and these things cannot be fully comprehended. But God does know the answers. And that's what He's telling Job. He holds all the answers, all the things that Job can't understand. God is the key to them all. Because He is the creator and controller of the universe, so light is able to speak. And light speaks to His greatness. Something that, that is beyond our comprehension. The seas in their place. The seas in their place. Genesis 1 and verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters He called seas, and God saw that it was good. How else could the forming of the seas be explained? And likewise the paths of the seas. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. And notice this in verse 8, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. When we notice the paths of the seas or any kind of body of water, whenever we notice how they, they are particularly placed, we can only see the handiwork of God. Man can't do that. But these things again speak to a wonderful Creator. And the fact that they are mentioned here in the Scriptures, again, is evidence to us that God knows of all these things. He understands them far better than we do because He placed them in their order. And only God could do that. This next one is one that I personally have been pondering I remember some years ago hearing a lesson that, that mentioned it briefly and I, I could never remember exactly what was said. And I have searched through commentaries and things of that nature. But 
whenever we think of life, whenever we think of man's existence, what provides us with life as far as our physical bodies are concerned? We think of the blood that flows through us. I was listening to a lesson uh, yesterday and it was a gentleman who had had been through a, a great deal of, in his life. He, he had gotten wrapped up in drugs and, and robbery and, and other crimes and, and he ended up, at one point he was shot and in the hospital and he, he spoke of, of almost dying and one of the things that he said was that, that at one point there was no blood left in his body. If not for transfusions and the things that the doctors were able to do, he would have died. Whenever we look at, at our bodies, we understand that life is in the blood. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 17. And let's notice what is said in verses 10 through 12. Leviticus 17 and beginning with verse 10. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 23. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 23. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. Without the flow of blood... Those creatures that are sustained by it would die. Now there are other things that live that do not have blood in them, such as plants. Uh, they, they don't have blood, but they are given a different life-sustaining element. And, and so we, we understand that. But there, there are many creatures, such as human beings and animals, that do have blood in them. And without that blood, life cannot be sustained. They would die. Before scientists were able to research its properties and importance, God told man that the life of the flesh is in the blood. They were not to take that life except by God's permission and only in the way that God prescribed because life is in the blood. 
I want to, to stop for a moment. I want to look briefly at the case of abortion. In the life of an infant as it is conceived, at just 22 days, a child in the womb must be sustained by blood flow. For an abortion to be performed, a doctor must stop this flow of life sustaining blood. While we as Christians know that life begins at conception, it doesn't begin at 22 weeks, we understand that life begins at conception. Whenever that child is conceived, God recognizes it. God knows that child. And while we know that life begins at conception, even before the necessary flow of blood, it is good for us to note its importance after. It's always wrong to take the life of a child. But to see in our country that legally that doctors can go in and stop the flow of blood to a child. Stop their life. When God has created it. It's a very, very sobering thing. A very sad thing for us to think about. But God has told us that life is in the blood. And when it comes to abortion, we do not have permission from God to take the life of a child. Before man knew what sustained life, God told him it was the blood that flowed within him. Evidence to the scientific accuracy of the Bible. And we also know from Scripture that all nations are of one blood. When man may look at skin or, or look at nationality and look at people and, and see great differences, the Bible teaches us that all are of one blood, and that all are important to God. All life is important to God. Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. God formed animals and man alike, not like each other, but He did form them all. And though there are many different nationalities, now there, whenever we look at, at blood, we do see uh, a difference between the life of an animal and the life of people. They're given for different purposes. Man is given dominion over all things. But when we look at people, we see people. 
Though there are many different nationalities, many differences between us and our looks and our character and things of that nature, God has formed us all from one original source of blood. And we understand that from Scripture. Until scientists were able to study DNA, we were told in Scripture that all of us come from one source of blood. In Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Adam and Eve were the original source of blood. We can trace our roots all the way back to the beginning as far as the Bible tells us. But there were two. One man and one woman gave birth to all mankind. Man, both Jew and Gentile, is an equal standing in the sight of God. God has created them all. And God has given all man equal opportunity to respond to the Lord's invitation. Whenever we look at scriptures, we see, especially in the New Testament times, that there was great division among people. The Jews hated the Gentiles because they were a heathen people. But eventually, as we read through the book of Acts, we find in Acts 10 that Cornelius, who was a Gentile, had the gospel preached to him. And he and his family, he and his household were offered the opportunity to obey the gospel. And they did. And just as, as had been foretold, there was a time where the gospel didn't just go to the Jews because many of the Jews rejected Jesus. But the gospel was sent to the Gentiles as well. So that all people would be given that opportunity to obey the gospel. And Jesus gave the great commission to his apostles. In Matthew chapter 28 and verses 18 through 20. He told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit baptizing them, teaching them to observe those things that they had been commanded. And today we carry on that commission and we spread the gospel to the world far and near. Because all man has been given the opportunity to obey it. All those who can understand it have the ability to obey it. And that gospel calls for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what kind of language you speak. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter anything else about life that we could think of that would be different. But all are given the opportunity to obey the gospel. And even now... All are given the opportunity 
to respond to the Lord's invitation. It may be that, that you never obeyed the gospel, and if that's the case, then we'd be glad to help you in that need, to baptize you for the remission of your sin. But maybe it is that you've not remained faithful. Maybe you have obeyed the gospel, but you've not been a faithful child of God. And you can come back to Him. You can re repurpose and rededicate your life to Him and His service. You can ask for prayers on your behalf. You can ask for forgiveness if that is your need. But you have the opportunity to respond to the Lord's invitation. That opportunity is available to you now. I hope that, that if you are in need of responding, if there is some way that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can help you, that you would come. As together we stand and as we sing.